How you weren't the MVP of that one, I don't understand. You get the rush that led to the safety. You had two sacks in that one. I mean, like, Eli snaked you twice. He snaked you twice out of an MVP. Yeah, he knows it. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. And Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their business and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. I've uh, got a treat for you today. Our guest is someone who should have two Super Bowl MVPs, but they always give those to the quarterbacks these days. He does have two Super Bowl championships, though, because of what he did on the field. Giants defensive end Justin Tuck. Part of that Super Bowl 42 Giants team that took down the then undefeated New England Patriots and did it again a few years later. His story is fascinating from where he started in Alabama to how he got to Notre Dame and the things he's doing now post-career. We really think you'll enjoy this episode with Justin Tuck. Let's start here. What would you have said, Justin, if someone came up to you when you were a kid in Alabama just learning to play football and said, well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be so good at this that you're going to get a scholarship to Notre Dame. You're going to get drafted by the Giants. You're going to play and win two Super Bowls where you should have been the MVP in both of them. <laughs> Let's be honest. And then you're going to get a degree from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. And, oh, by the way, go on to work for Goldman Sachs. Listen, man, I, I am a guy that truly believes in, you know, this country gives us a platform to do great things. Um, but if you told me that, you know, as a, as a kid in Kellington, Alabama, um, yeah, I'd have been questioning a lot of things about your mental sanity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'd have believed that one. What was the hardest part for you to believe when it was actually happening? Like, was it where was the moment when Justin Tuck said, man, is this really my life? Yeah, I, I think the hardest part, honestly, was, you know, the, the Notre Dame part, because that was the, the first leg of it, I guess, or the first big leg of it. And after that, it was kind of like, you know, I just felt like, like you put the, the effort into it, you know, the opportunities are going to continue to come. So Notre Dame was the first big opportunity, right? And from there, I just felt like once I got to Notre Dame, then yeah, I, I feel like I got the confidence that I can play with the best of the best in this sport. So getting drafted to the NFL and playing well in the NFL wasn't as, quote unquote, surprising. You know, no one had ever, from around my way, no one had ever went you know, to a place like Notre Dame, you know, had a lot of friends that had been to Alabama and Auburn. That was kind of things you didn't, you probably took for, you know, for granted because if you were good, you just felt like you was going to get opportunity to play at those schools because they were in your backyard. But Notre Dame was a kind of a, a, a global school that we all kind of looked at. And when I got the opportunity to go there, you know, people looked at me like, I don't know if we can make it there, right? That's a, that's a different level of student athlete. So, uh, yeah, I would, I, would, I would say that that was definitely the first leg of, of, of everything else to come. So what was it about Notre Dame that made it the place you wanted to go? Was it the challenge of what you just said, of, of not just being a football school, but a, but a real student-athlete experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very blessed to have friends and family members who had been in, you know, had did exactly what I wanted to do, play in the NFL. Adelius Thomas, uh, Jamario Moon, yeah. Gerald Wallace, all guys who grew up in my neighborhood. Uh, that it's a good seen, neighborhood. Yeah, I'd seen kind of uh, make that leap, right? So for me, um, 
I think the hard part or the, the, the uncomfortable part was I was going away from home for the first time. Um, but I also realized that, you know, NFL, I mean, you know, just sports in general, but the NFL stands for not for long. That's what I continuously got preached to from all the people who I had a relationship with. And if you think about it from that perspective, right, even if, even for a guy like me who played 11 years, I retired when I was 32 years old. You know, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? So Notre Dame was that place where it was like, yeah, you're going to play these great teams. You're going to have a great, you know, opportunity to play, you know, sports at a high level. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to be even that more demanding on the on the on the education side, on the education front. So um, that was probably the, the kind of the hardest part. What was the sort of aha moment then when you were at Notre Dame? Was it uh, the balance of those two things? Was there a certain time where you realized, okay, I can do all of this, even though it's a, a different level of overall experience? Yeah, I mean, like, I think it was pretty quick, honestly, on, well, especially on the football side of things. Uh, you know, I think... <laughs> You know, how I got recruited in Notre Dame and then walking into that place and, you know, everyone's talking about they're from, you know, this place, this place in Florida, this place in California. And I'm from this small town in, in Kelton, Alabama, that people that live, you know, 20 minutes away had never heard of it. So me trying to explain to people, you know, I grew up playing here and playing this and like they didn't know any of the schools. Right. So, they, you know, just, you know, human nature being means like you probably are not prepared for this big time of a football but like when you step on the football field, everything for me was equal. And going out there and just proving my point as far as being, you know, just as athletic, just as as good as everyone around me, uh, that was the easy part. The hard part was trying to balance the two of, you know, the three of my first time being away from home. Uh, yeah. Academics was very hard. I, you know, I don't know if any people think that like, oh, Notre Dame just gives out scholarship, but they don't. Yeah. Uh, and they expect you to go into classrooms and work. Uh, and then, you know, the combination of those two things and, you know, still trying to be the best football player I could be was something that was new to me. So I think by the end of my freshman year uh, was a time where I kind of clicked to me and was just like, you know what, I can do all this. And, and, and I got a lot of resources around me to help me do it as well. So, uh, Well, clearly it worked out because you left there with almost every defensive record possible, uh, sort of rewrote the record book when it came to sacks. They also gave you a great nickname, The Freak. Who, who who gave you that nickname at Notre Dame? I think it was our, my strength coach, Mickey Marotti. Uh, you know, Javon Curse was the freak, and that's kind of yeah. I I always I never liked that nickname just because I never felt like I was Javon Curse ish. Uh, when you think yeah. about just when I saw his stats coming out of Florida, I think he was six six, two hundred sixty five pounds, around a four four or something like that, and I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. a freak. And then my junior <laughs> my junior year, I was six five, two seventy, around a four four. So. Um, yeah. But I never really liked that nickname just because I felt like it was it was him. My mom nicknamed nicknamed me He Man as a kid, and I always liked that one better. <laughs> he Man. All right, we'll go. I like that. We'll go with He Man. By the way, the thing that most people don't know about Javon Kirst, if you've ever if you've never met him, he has the world's greatest FM DJ voice of all time. Right? <laughs> like, like Javon. When you talk to Javon, hey man, how you doing? Right? I mean, like he he has soul in that voice. That's true, actually. Actually, it's true. Now, every time I see him now, that's the first thing that's going to click in my mind when he says, what's up, Tuck? And I'm like, yo, man, you should be on, on radio somewhere. Yeah, like like doing an all-night jam session at 3 a.m., you know, at 98.3 or something. That That's when you hear Javon Curse. that's the only thing that'll be in your brain. So, clearly things went well for you at Notre Dame. And you lasted until the third round of the draft when you came out <laughs> in 2005. That was, that was not what anybody thought was going to happen. What changed there? 
Well, I, I was coming off an ACL injury, and I, I, this is my fault because I was the guy that, um, honestly, if I wouldn't have tore my ACL, I would have highly thought about coming out my junior year. Um, you know, and you call the NFL, and they tell you where your slide to go and all these things, and they told me top 15 pick. Uh, but then I, I tore my ACL up, so that, that kind of changed it. So when you have that, that – that, I guess that thing in the back of your head of like, I don't want to let anything lapse, right? If I'm a top 15 pick in my junior year, then I don't want this knee injury to, you know, anybody see any weakness in that and and, and my draft status lapse. Uh, And doing that, I came back a little earlier than what I should have did. uh, And, you know, some tendonitis set in my knee late in that year and I ended up missing the bowl game. And it just wasn't right. Uh, But I still was like, listen, I've graduated, I'm I'm leaving. I didn't want to come back for my my which would have been my my senior year uh, on the field. Um, I didn't want to come back to, to to Notre Dame and do that because I'd already graduated. I wanted to move on. I was ready to move on. And um, just so happens they have these this thing called the combine where you get tested. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. my right knee tested like seventy five percent weaker than my left knee, or something like that. And that put a lot of um, that kind of red flag meets all the teams in the top, you know, drafting the first round. So that's kind of what happened. Um, and I was a little upset about it just because I knew I was better than, you know, 99% of the defensive players that was taken in front of me. At least I thought that was. You know, everyone thinks they're the best one. But, like, you know, I, I felt like I was really better than, you know, a lot of guys who were taken before me. And, I, you know, honestly, it was a blessing in, in disguise because I kept that as a – a kind of a, a, a monkey on my back throughout my entire career. If you ask some of the coaches when when I stepped on, the, on um, in a locker room at, at, at New York and the Giants, you know, Coach Merritt, who's in Kansas City now, he he has he loves telling the story of the first time he met me. I was sitting in my locker and I was pissed off, and he asked me, "Why are you pissed off?" And I was like, "Well, I think I think there was eleven defensive ends taken in front of me, or something like that." And yeah. I told him, "That's why I'm pissed off." And, like, all he could keep telling me was, like, hey, yo, man, you're in New York City, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I, at that time, I'm 21 years old, and I, I didn't want to hear that. I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to be that guy who went top, you know, 10, top 15 pick because I knew I had the talent to do so. But, I mean, I think that, that most most guys that achieve a lot of success in this league do carry that chip. I mean, Tom Brady still talks about where he was picked. I mean, you know, so I, I – like, I understand what your coach was trying to tell you, but at the end of the day, whatever your fuel has to be your fuel, right? And that's what it came, that's what it came out of that. Because, like, you know, when I talked yeah. to coaches, that, you know, that first impression of, the, of me was, you know, this guy is hungry and he wants to prove people wrong. He's in a good position to do so. Uh, and, I, I, you know, at first they might have thought it was arrogance, uh, but as they got to know me and got to work with me through the years, they felt as though that was one of the blessings that made me, you know, the player that I ended up being, just because no matter what, right? Like, people always ask me about the Super Bowl rings and so on and so forth. And I always tell them, I don't wear the rings. And they're like, why? And I was, my line is literally because I have eight other fingers that are upset with me. Um, <laughs> and that's just how I've always approached it, right? It's just, that's not me being cocky or, or arrogant or anything like that. It's just, I've never, I've, I've never been impressed by anything that I've done. Uh, just because I know that there's a lot more in the tank, uh, regardless of, you know, what we're talking about. If we're talking about... You know, finance, if you're talking about philanthropy, if you're talking about sports, if you're talking about me being a better father or husband, all these different things, right? I've never, uh, the day that I'm satisfied with those things is the day that I should be leaving this earth. So 
your first couple of years, you know, you battled some injuries, and I think 2007 is going to be considered your breakthrough year, even though you only started two games that year. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, but, to, it's hard to yeah. start when you got a guy like Michael Strahan on one side and OCM on right. the other. So correct. Yeah, but but I think everybody looks at 2007 as your breakthrough year, not only for what you were able to do in that rotation uh, with OC uh, and Michael Strahan, but also, of course, what happened in the postseason and. That was the year that you guys played the the Patriots and they beat you 35-31, I think, final game of the year, first 16-0 season uh, in NFL history. And you guys meeting up again in the Super Bowl. And, you know, look, I'll be honest with you, I thought it was a coronation. Like, they played you guys and you guys had lost. And, you know, this was the ultimate team. And, you know, Tom Brady and Belichick at the peak of their powers, they're basically F you to the rest of the league because of the Spygate thing that started that year. And they were going to extract their revenge. But I remember sitting next to Sal Palantonio uh, in the first quarter, in the first series of that game for the Patriots, and watched you guys just plow through the offensive line of the Patriots. And Sal and I looked at each other and said, this game may be different than most people think. When did you know in that game that, hey, this defensive line, the NASCAR package, was going to be the difference in the game? Well, I knew that before the game started, way before the game started. Um, listen, we, we played them in week, uh, the last week of the season, week 16. I got to get used to saying last week of the season, week 17 now, because uh, yeah. it's the change. But week 16, we played them. We already knew where our, our playoff slot was. We knew no matter what happened in this game, we was going down to Tampa Bay. Uh, but obviously, you do not want to cheat the game, right? You want to go out there and give 100% because we didn't want them to go 16-0. Uh, we you know, at the basis, we didn't want to lose. Uh, but yeah. we didn't spend as, as as much time preparing for them as we normally would have been preparing if we needed to win that game to improve our season or something like that. So it was kind of a mixed bag of, you know, a little bit of uh, the base stuff that New England does and so on and so forth. But we were getting ready for Tampa Bay, to be completely honest with you. So getting in that game and having a chance to beat these guys who were all worldly, and like let's just be honest about it, right? They were 16-0 for yeah. a reason. They had... You know, all stars from top to bottom, uh, and arguably the best wide receiver uh, quarterback duo ever, right? So the confidence that we came out of that game with, even though we lost, uh, was tremendous. I remember telling OC on the sideline, or he, him telling me, because I was kind of upset on the fact that we lost it how we did in the fourth quarter, because we had been a team that was used to finishing in the fourth quarter, and we, you know, they they beat us in the fourth quarter. And I was kind of upset about that. He just kind of, as they were walking out the field, kind of celebrated. He kind of like came over and put his hand on my shoulder. Like, we'll see him again. And in my mind, it was like, well, the only way we're going to see them is in the Super Bowl. And we had kind of had like this Cheshire grin on our face, looking at each other like, yeah, we'll see them again. And when we got in that game, man, it was, we had always been a D-line the entire year where we said to ourselves, this team is going to run how we run, not how the quarterback goes or the running backs go or the O-line go, no, the D-line is going to set the tempo for this entire team. It's just how we're built. And we looked across that O-line and saw, you know, Matt Light and Logan Mankins and all these, you know, these Pro Bowl players, but we felt like neither one of them could block us. They couldn't block us individually. They couldn't block us double team. They, we just had that type of confidence in it, and we allowed it to go. And I believe, honestly, for me and my vantage point, I didn't know anything different. You know, it's the Super Bowl, sure, but this is my first one. Right. So I didn't get caught up in the, the, the whole glitz and glamour of the Super Bowl. And for me, honestly, walking into that stadium, I felt like I was going into my backyard 
and just playing football. So it, it, you, I never got these really, really nervous kicks. I just went out and played and played fast. And the energy level of that game, like, I don't, I don't ever remember being tired until I got to the sideline because your energy level kind of lowers down while you're not playing. And then I was like, oh, shit, I'm tired. But when you step back on the football field, it was, it was just, you know, it was electric. Well, and I use the term NASCAR package. For those that don't remember or weren't familiar, that's a term that you came up with because the Giants have basically employed, at times, four defensive ends on the field. Like you said, O.C. Strahan yourself, Matthias Kiwanuka was part of that. And the whole plan was, if we put defensive ends everywhere, we're going to be faster and more athletic than the guards trying to block us. And plus, you know, we, we had the vantage point. You know, I was considered a big DN. But because of yeah. the trial and error of being a guy who I just told the coach, I just want to get on the field. And you're not yeah. – Michael Strahan has not come off the field. I know he's in year 15, yeah. but, like, he was very adamant about the fact that, like, I'm playing every snap I can play because he was the guy – I thought he – I think he saw the writing on the wall that this is probably my last season. I want to get everything out of him. It wasn't like he was trying to say, like, oh, I'm not letting Justin get his shine. It was like, no, I – I want, I want to keep playing. And then OC, you know, the young, he was the young bull at the time, right? So I just said to myself, look, I don't care where you put me. You can put me as a, as a, as a, as a slot cornerback. I don't care. Just, I just want to play. So we started doing a lot of trial and error stuff, some rover linebacker packages, some me getting down in the, in, at nose and three technique. And I just fell in love with being down in the middle of things because one, I felt like I was strong enough to kind of, you know, at least hold a point for a little bit on the run game in those situations, right? Um, yeah. Obviously, that was not, you know, my advantage. But anytime we got into a situation where it was a pass situation, it was – I just I just felt like me lining up in a three technique is making those guards knee buckle. Uh, yeah. and, and for me, I mean, like, I didn't care. I was like, listen, just throw me in there. I don't care. We'll figure it out. And over time, I got so comfortable down there. It was, it was almost to a point where I was like, I don't even want to play left end. No, let let's stay let's stay let let's stay play out there. Let me go anywhere I want to go within the realms of being in, in inside of OC and straight. I don't care where it is. Just put me somewhere. So as that game's going through, and obviously it's a low scoring game. And by the way, kudos to Plexico Burris who said the Giants were going to win twenty one to seventeen. And Tom Brady got all offended. It was like twenty one points. We're only going to score twenty one. I got an interesting story about that line yeah. too. By the way, well let's hear it. Let's hear it. You know, like. Before we go to practices, we are all sitting around. We got, you know, uh, the defense is sitting with the defense. The offense is all sitting in the offense or whatever. And we got the TVs on and the interview uh, of Plaxico is showing. And then they, they obviously go right to, you know, Brady's response. And when he said we're only going to score 17 and had that, that just that, that Californian um, surfer board swag to him about it, like it was like, yeah. it's no, no way. Which I, we understood. I mean, like, listen, he did what he did for the entire year. If some, if I was on the opposite side of that, I probably would have felt like that way, that way too. But the worst thing for him was it was me, O.C. Stray, Antonio Pierce, R.W. Cordes, Sam Mad Dog Madison. All of us was kind of sitting together. Every, I knew he was going to win the game when I looked around and saw everybody's face when he said that. And it's like literally like everyone's face just turned into like, you know, red-eyed. It was like we were so determined to to prove him wrong in that situation. And we went out and did it. And, like, obviously, you know, you give them a lot of credit. That team, if we played 10 games, how many do we win? I don't know. It wouldn't be 10 of them, right? But yeah, that yeah. night was our night. And it was because the level of 
focus that we had throughout the week. I mean, like Coach Coffin's talked about it several times about just how fast and how crisp our practices were. Um, you know, the combination of the veteran leadership we had on that team and the young and hungry guys, and I would even say young, hungry, and dumb guys. And by the mean, by what I mean by dumb is like we didn't know how big that moment was, which right. allowed us to just go and play. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, Plaxico called it, um, and we won up them. Like we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, and like. To be honest with you, people don't know this, but it was a trap, trap two coverage where our corners slipped down with the, with the Randy Moss slant touchdown in, in the fourth quarter. Yeah. If we if we play that right, it's a, it's it's probably a pick six, or or, yeah. or, or, or Brady doesn't throw. But right, right. So. But what's interesting you say that about a crisp practice because Eli told me a great story about the final practice of that game where David Tyree had arguably the worst practice anybody has ever had I, I think he dropped what eight balls in that practice right. and then for him to go make that catch after that practice Eli was like you I would have never believed he would have been the guy able to do that that's right listen it was so bad the defense <laughs> the defense got mad at Gilbert because he kept calling plays for the ball to be thrown at David Tyree Kevin Gilbride, the offensive coordinator. Yeah, we were literally on the sideline, and excuse my French. Uh, yeah, it's okay. But we were literally on the sideline. Kevin, if you don't throw that fucking play out, like, don't, <laughs> literally telling him, like, do not call that. Like, seriously. I mean, like, guys were yeah. mad. It wasn't like a joke. Like, you know, you, you've yeah. seen, like, the Friday and Saturday practice where, like, guys are crisp. The, the DBs aren't, you know, they're not challenging the ball in the air. It's like you, you run your route, you get your feeding, footing, the guy goes up and catches the ball, and you don't do anything, right? So you shouldn't have a ball on the ground. That was Coach Coffin's thing. Like, there should never be a ball on the ground on these, these, these Saturday practices. And Tyree, I, eight is probably an understatement. He, he dropped a bunch of them. So what was it like going through that and then seeing him make that catch at that moment in the game. You know what's so funny, right? It, it, it doesn't even dawn on you in that moment, right? The team was so close yeah. and close and knit. It was almost like we expected him to catch it. I, I, don't know, I don't know how that feels that way, but it's like, you know, for, for the entire year, guys, we had so many guys that step up and do uh, – it wasn't anything unnatural, right? It was like guys did what they were supposed to do. David Tyree was supposed to catch that slant in the back of the end zone. That's the exact same play that he dropped five times in a row, literally five times in a row. Uh, so I mean, but like we never, we never, it never dawned in our head like he's not going to catch that, that that play. And and like for us, we saw it on the sideline. We saw it. David Tyree lines up out wide. He motions in. He's going to fake the, the, the block on the, on the outside linebacker and slip right in between the safety. Right. Seen it all day, every day, and he caught it. But the helmet kicks. Now that's. Yeah, it's a little different, right? But yeah. I mean, like, listen, David Tyree is one of my best teammates ever. That guy is a phenomenal dude, and when you think about it, right? I think he truly deserved it. He was one of these guys that was always sacrificing his body on special teams and doing whatever he could do to help the team win. And for him to get that moment, man, I don't think it could have, you know, I don't think anyone better could have been the person who got that moment. All right, speaking of getting the moments, and you and I have joked about this a couple times in the past. Like, I know you love Eli, and you're happy for Eli, okay? But in that game, you had two sacks and a forced fumble, and how were you not the MVP of that game? Um, so, someone voted for Eli. 
I think defensive players are so screwed these days, man. They're just so screwed. They are. That's 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 another argument. They definitely are. Yeah. But you know, I'll, I'll I'll be the bigger man in this situation. I don't, I don't know if bigger man is the right phrase, but like, let's just be honest. We don't win that game. And Matt, people will say, "Oh, you don't win that game without you doing what you did to Tom Brady." But we don't win that game without right. Eli Manning. And it's yeah. it's the it's the nature of the position, right? Everyone is gonna give yeah. the, the tip of the cap to the quarterback because he has so much more on his plate, right? He, I mean, he's the he's the guy who's literally running that team in a lot of situations. Um, Do I think I deserve MVP? Absolutely. Do I think Eli deserved MVP? Absolutely. So if you think if it's a tie in that moment, let's just say it was, right? You know, you always want to get a nod to the quarterback, which is – and considering what he did on that final drive, you know, I'm I'm fine with it. But the the one thing that I I was a little upset with, I'm not going to tell you who told me this, but someone told me they voted before the drive – and I came in second uh, on a losing team. I came in second to Tom Brady, right before the final yeah, drive. Yeah. So I I came in second. After the drive, I lost by one vote to Eli. That's what oh. someone told me. And I was like, Why would you tell me that? Thank you. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And, and why don't you just wait till the game's over? How about that? In, in, a, in a one in a one score game, maybe we don't turn in the ballots until you know the clock reaches zero. I think that that's something that could be done. So that one. Um, it hurt for a little bit, but literally, I mean, like, we won a Super Bowl. And if I'm the guy that's going to sit here and not be grateful for that and think about, like, oh, you know, I should have won MVP. Who cares? I, I, I love the fact that people keep coming up to me and saying I should have won MVP. And that is, that's, that's enough for me. All right. Well, listen, while we take a break right now, when we'll come back and we'll talk more about the second time Eli Manning stole an MVP award <laughs> with the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 46. Yeah. That's next with Justin Tuck. Stay with us. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Starbucks Triple Shot Energy Extra Strength Coffee Beverage in a Can. That's Starbucks coffee that you love, ready to drink, offered in classic flavors, and now in zero sugar. They have four core flavors, vanilla, dark roast, cafe mocha, and caramel, and now also offering two zero sugar flavors, black and vanilla. Both are zero sugar and dairy-free. What gives you your energy? Find your Starbucks Triple Shot Energy online or at your local store. Hey everybody, Trey Wingo here to tell you that NFLSundayTicket.tv is like having front row seats to every out-of-market game all season long, every Sunday afternoon. No matter where you live, that is a lot of football. And guess what? This season you get more football than ever before. 18 weeks of NFL glory right there in front of you, streamed to your favorite device. Just picture this scenario with me. You sit down, you put your feet up, kick back eat snacks, and watch an insane amount of NFL football every Sunday afternoon. So make your seat a front row seat and catch every second of your favorite players and your favorite teams every Sunday afternoon. Now to see if you're eligible for this, make sure you go to NFLSundayTicket.tv slash SundayReady and stream every NFL Sunday ticket game this season to follow your favorite team no matter where you live. Use promo code WINGO2021 at checkout to get 15% off. Exclusive discounts also available. Select international games excluded. Eligibility restrictions do apply. Compatible device required. Data charges may apply. All right, back with more Half Forgotten History here with a longtime Giants defensive end, Justin Tuck, who also finished up his career with the Raiders. Great story there. We'll get into that. One of the great moments of all time. Uh, We'll get into that in a little bit. But, uh, you know, after you guys won the Super Bowl, went through a couple of seasons, had some disappointment, and then 
you find yourselves basically doing the same thing again after the 2011 season, and and you find your way into Super Bowl 46, and who's waiting for you there? Once again, it's the New England Patriots. Was there any part of you or the team, because Strahan had left, obviously, but most of the team was pretty much the same. Was there any part of you that was like, we've done this already? Yeah, human nature like allows you to slip your brain into that, right? But you know, we, we at that time, you know, I'm now in the, in the, in the, the mode that kind of what Strahan was in, in the 42 Super Bowl. I'm kind of the leader of the team and, and captain of the defense and so on and so forth. So you, you're smart enough to know, like, once these these thoughts start running in your head, you're already behind, right? You're already you're already in a losing mentality. Uh, because there's yeah. so many different things um, going into this game than it was in the, in the previous one, right? We are, in a lot of ways, the, the favorite in this one. Um, Tom had talked about his opportunity to revenge that loss, that, that one loss, right? Uh, so I knew they were going to be, for obvious reasons, right? It's the Super Bowl. But, like, I yeah. knew that they were going to be even more hungry uh, to see us across the line and, and to kind of get some redemption into what we did, you know, four years earlier. Uh, and that was the message. The message was, listen, let's do it. If, if, if we've done this already, then let's remember what, what we did that first time, right? The, how crisp yeah. the practice was, how we didn't have any distractions, you know, how we came into this thing from a meeting standpoint, from a protecting your body standpoint, from, you know, uh, film study standpoint that got us to that point of playing as fast as we played in that, in that 42 Super Bowl. Uh, that was the narrative. That was the message. And uh, again, guys, it was very receptive to it. We, we had, again, we had a great mix of older vets and these younger guys who didn't realize what they were getting themselves into. And it, it worked out again. Well, the thing that I, the, the biggest lesson I took away from Super Bowl 46 is, and I, I think all of us, whether we play or watch football or cover the game, we get enamored with, oh, he did it when it mattered most. In the final two minutes, he did this amazing thing. One of the most important things that came out of Super Bowl 46 is that how you start a game is many times just as important as how you finish a game because it was your bull rush on Tom Brady on the Patriots' first drive of that game that led him to, from his own end zone, Throwing that pass to the middle, deep middle of the field where there was nobody there. That's a safety. That's two points for the Giants. And that's why on the final drive of that game, the Patriots needed to score a touchdown to win instead of just needing a field goal to win. I, I, I'd given this speech before the game, and I, and I said something like, if it's on me today, we're all going to have another Super Bowl ring or a Super Bowl ring. And to come out in that first play of the game, even though it was a busted rush, it wasn't the greatest rush. It was just, I think, just wanting it more, right? Just being, you know, you know, having that tenacity to just keep fighting uh, and just trying to figure out a way to get to Tom Brady because we knew, listen, if you, if you allow that guy to sit back there and pick you apart, you have no chance, right? So, again, that D-line, we knew that we had to come out, set the tone, set it fast, we got a great kick from Steve Welford to put, you know, pin him down there and and had the opportunity to just know that, like, you know, in the setting that they were in, they kind of put it, put them, themselves in max protection. And I'm like, this this is not this is not Patriots' M.O. They, when they want to run the ball, they, they might have tried to, like, 
come out in 21 personnel and or spread us out and kind of eat some yards out. They're not, they're not the team, or I didn't think they were the team that's going to, like, load you up and try to, like, quarterback sneak in that moment. So I was betting on a play-action pass there and was able yeah. to kind of sneak through and, 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 and get to Tom and, and make him make a decision a little bit quicker than he wanted to. And, and luckily for us, the referee called it. Sometimes th- those plays don't get called. Uh, yeah. But our, our referee saw it and called it, and we are all to the races. Well, that, that was one of the weird things about that Super Bowl because that was the first drive. Uh, the other weird thing was Ahmad Bradshaw trying not to score the touchdown. And, you know, we tried not to score to just run out, bleed out the clock, kick the field goal to win, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, he sort of fell into the end zone. What, what was your guys – because everyone knew what, what he was trying to do, and sure. he just didn't do it. What were you guys thinking when you saw that on the sidelines? I was glad. Like, yeah. people, people argue with me when I say this. I was like, why wouldn't I want to be on the field to end it? Right. I, 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 never, I never subscribed to, you know um, – and I, obviously, you know, if I was the head coach, my, you know, my, my – my words here would be different. But as a defensive player, yeah. I wanted to be on the field to end it. Uh, and when they scored, I mean, the whole drive, I'm sitting there telling the guys, like, listen, man, just keep your mind into this, man. We're going to have to go back and win this thing. I, we had all the confidence in the world that Eli was going to drive the guy down and score. That was that wasn't even yeah. an issue for us, especially after the Mario Manningham throw. Yeah. But in that moment, it's easy to get caught up in the moment and start celebrating, celebrating and cheering on your teammates and then totally forget that, oh, we got to go back and win this thing. So the whole time, I'm not, I'm sitting on the sideline. If you look at me, I look calm. I'm not, but I, I look calm. I'm just telling guys, keep it into it. Let's start thinking about what, what, what defenses have worked for us, what blitzes have worked for us, what fronts have worked for us throughout the game because we're going to have to, you know, call, call on all of that to you know, stop this guy from scoring at the end of it. So when Ahmad tried to stop, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was super excited. You know, I grabbed my helmet and was ready to go because we knew we get we get the opportunity to end this on the field, just like we did in '42, right? And right, right. I've always I've always wanted to be those the guys in those moments. And, and you know, when Eli retired and all his clips were being played, I, I remember watching Super Bowl '46, and I texted you this. I said, I'm rewatching this game. And how you weren't the MVP of that one, I don't understand. Because you get the you get the rush that led to the safety, which was one of the biggest plays in the game. You had two sacks in that one. I mean, like Eli snaked you twice. He snaked you twice out of an MVP. Yeah, he knows it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, again, we don't get there without Eli. Like yeah. the things that he accomplished that year. You know, I think that that year led off with everyone asking him if is he's elite, right? And for the first time. In, what I saw from him was he, he came out and said, damn right I'm going to leave, right? That wasn't yeah. necessarily Eli's M.O. Uh, coming into that. I think he just got tired of guys asking him these stupid questions. Am I a lead? Yeah. Just because my name is not Peyton doesn't mean I'm not a lead. And I think he was just tired of it, right? So, you know, for him to back that up throughout the entire year, right? I, I forget how many, like, four-quarter comeback games he had and, and didn't have it again in the Super Bowl to lead our team to a game-winning drive, just like he did all season long, right? Uh, with the pressure of knowing that if he has any slip-up here, it's, it's magnified because, one, he's a man. Two, he's in New York City. Uh, yeah. I give him a lot of credit to step up and do what he did. So we don't get there without him. And obviously, we don't win that game without him. And just like 42, do I think I played at a level, a, a MVP caliber level? Absolutely, I do. 
Yeah. Do I think I deserve the Super Bowl MVP? Absolutely, I do. Do I think Eli does? One hundred percent. So, yeah. if anything, you know, maybe they can start having these co MVPs. It happened I'll once. Say, I'll also say that you know maybe I maybe I some of the guys who 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 won it after me like Vaughn. You're welcome, Vaughn. I, I started the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like there was, there was a time there were co MVPs, and they were two defensive players. Super Bowl sure. twelve, Harvey Martin and Randy White, White. Of, the, of the Dallas Cowboys. Um, before we move on to one of the greatest plays in, in the history of your career, which was a timeout, which was fantastic. Um, let, let's just stay on Eli here for a second because you, you're right. He's not Peyton, okay, and he's never going to be Peyton. But seeing him every day, working with him every day, practicing with him with him every day. Like, the, the thing that I take away from Eli is that he always showed up. Like, he never missed a game until they told him to sit down. Yeah, you know? What was, what's the one thing that you took away from all those years with Eli that maybe people don't know? He never really changed. Yeah. <laughs> from day one. I hate this part of what we do, but everyone knows our contracts. They know what guys make. Uh, Eli made a lot of damn money, right? And you, yeah. we've all seen it, right? from guys who yeah. come in the league in a certain way and then they have all the success and things about them change, right? Whether that's their yeah. work ethic, whether that's the people they hang out with, whether that's, you know, the things they're into, whatever it may be. There's nothing about Eli that changed, right? He still showed up in, like, these these, these khaki slacks or uh, slacks in general, some type of, like, uh, I, I call them golf shoe without the spikes, that type of shoe, right? <laughs> I know exactly what you, you know mean. What I'm trying to and you know, when it got cold, he had his little you know quarter zip fleece, right? And he showed up in his Toyota that was given to him for free, uh, and he was there every day doing the same exact things every day. And yeah. that's, I think that's hard to do, especially when you're in the limelight like he was in New York City. There's all this, this, this. Uh, distractions around you to come do this and be this and be out in this nightlight or this, whatever. Like, nothing about him ever changed. And that's refreshing to see. So it made it very easy for people to know who he was because he was that guy 100% all the time. And when you talk about guys who always showed up, you, you just spoke on it. He, he always was, you know, the guy who was working out when he was supposed to work out, eating the right stuff, being in the meeting room early, calling extra meetings with his wideouts and so on and so forth. You know, in all season, going to Duke and having these guys show all these different things that just showed the level of, of leadership he had because he wasn't a vocal leader. And that's and in today's society of social media and all these other you know things, you know, people want things to go you know viral or, or, or something they can repost. He never did anything right. that was worthy of reposting outside of his play. So right. it didn't make him the quote unquote sexy you know figure to talk about, but. He was the most consistent dude in doing what he did every Sunday, and you know, yeah. a lot. In, you know, in, in, in today's era, that might not win over a lot of fans, but it wins you football games and puts you in situations to win football games. He never changed, but you did change at the end of your career. You finished up with a couple of years with the Raiders. And you know what play I'm talking about. It was a Thursday night game. You guys were playing the Chiefs. You guys had not won a game. You were 0 and 10. Which, by the way, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, let alone someone who plays professionally. Like, how the Lions and the Browns those years went 0-16 and just did, their heads didn't explode, I'll never understand. Because it's just, it's just the worst feeling to, to never win. So, in that game, late in the contest, 
uh, Khalil Mack and C.O. Moore, a linebacker out of UConn, get a big sack on Alex Smith. And they're out there dancing and celebrating the, the sack. And the Chiefs are getting up to run a play. And they're 10, 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage. And they suddenly realize, oh, shit, they're going to run a play. We got to get back. And they weren't going to make it. And you call the timeout. And I'm telling you, the look on your face, when you like if you could have just beaten their you-know-whats, you would have for being that stupid. Yeah. You know, now that I look back at it, um, it's still a stupid play, 100%. No, nothing I can say to take it yeah. out of that. But I understand it, right? You know, you just, yeah. you just put the narrative where it was. We're 0-10. And up until that time, I never had a losing season. People don't realize that. We, we, the worst I've been in my career was 8-8. Eight and, eight. Um, and being on that team, seeing the young talent that we had and, and just the struggles that people like me and Charles Wilson had trying to figure out how to pour into these guys about just what it takes to win in this league. Right. Uh, it was a struggle. Uh, that was a struggle. Um, but – to that place specifically, I think they thought it was fourth down and, they, and we had won the game. Obviously, it was not. Right. And, yeah. and now you have a play where literally the Kansas City Chiefs have a free play if we don't call a timeout there. And it wasn't like everybody's thinking, oh, Justin's such a smart player. It's like, well, anybody, anybody should have called a timeout right there. You have them. <laughs> Use them. Because um, I knew they were not going right. to get back. I knew they were going to either they, either – Either they're going to have a free play where they can just throw it up and, and have no ramifications. And, and a lot of times in those plays, it ain't the fact that the guy catches the ball. It's the fact that right. we haven't set our defense and you get a P.I. and they get to place, place the ball, you know, at the one-yard line. And, and you know, obviously, right. you know, you stand a, a, a huge chance of not winning the game at that point. So, you know, just call the timeout was the right thing to do right there. And after the timeout, I was just pissed. I mean, what, you know, what <laughs> can I tell you? I was just mad. And... Um, yeah, I said some things that I wish I don't I don't necessarily wish I could take them back, but like I said some things that I probably shouldn't have said because that was just the boiling up of zero and ten, right? Right. Luckily, right. We went on and won the game, and I think you know Co and, and, and Khalil and everyone involved learned a valuable lesson there. That like you know don't celebrate when the offensive line is, is lining up and has an opportunity to throw the ball in the end zone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Two words, situational awareness. Yeah. It matters. It matters. Yeah. Um, so, again, all right, that's how you finished your playing career. <laughs> but, but like you said, you were done at 32. So you had an, an amazing career yet to come. We'll take our next final break with Justin. We'll come back and talk about what he's done since his playing days are over. Coming right back. Stay with us. Fire up your tailgate because the NFL is back, people. Get into the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And with the NFL returning, DraftKings is giving new customers $200 in free bets instantly when you bet $1 or more on any football game. Now listen up because you don't want to miss out on this offer. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 or more on any week one game to receive $200 in free bets instantly. And if Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contests. And for week one, DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at a $1 million top prize. Nothing adds to the excitement of watching a game quite like having a free shot at a $1 million as the top prize. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code WINGO to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. And get a free shot at a $1 million top prize with your first deposit. 
That's promo code WINGO this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer and restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. All right, finishing up here with uh, Justin Tuck. As you said at the start of this, you know, your, your playing career was done at 32. You had to do something else. But tell me how you decided to do what you did, which is go get a, a, a degree from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and turn that into a career at Goldman Sachs. I mean, the short answer is uh, me and my wife, you know, we have two sons, Jason and Jonah. And every time we get the chance to eat dinner together, we do this thing called favorite part of the day. And for three weeks of retirement, my favorite part of the day, if I didn't lie to my kids, was I played golf and had a really good beer on, on, on the 19th hole. Right. Um, and it really dawned on me very quickly uh, that they were never going to remember any of the things that we've talked about previously. Right? They weren't going to remember number 91 in, in, in Giants lore. They weren't going to remember the Super Bowls. Um, they would probably see replays of it, but they're not. The legacy that I was leaving for them at that point in time was this lazy bum sitting on the couch watching Trey Wingo talk about things that he don't understand. <laughs> he doesn't understand that well. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so when they're 21 years old or where that, that time frame is where they need to go out and be who they need to be as men, um, I wasn't going to be a good role model to them. So yeah. I started really contemplating, you know, what's my next chapter? What do I want to do? How do I want to use the platform that I have to, to help people? And um, I started talking to a lot of people. I, I When I played in the NFL, the thing that I think I did was, that was the smartest thing I did was when I was hot – you know, coming off a of Pro Bowl, coming off a of big game, coming off a of Super Bowl, whatever it may be, I tried to find people in New York City and in the surrounding areas that I could go and take the dinner or take the coffee and, and, and pick their brain about the things they did for a living. Whether that was hedge fund managers, private equity principals, right. you know, owners of businesses, you know, you know, real estate, all these different sectors, tech. And I would try to find people who were huge Giants fans. You know, I was just looking looking, looking, looking in, in the uh, the suites and saying, okay, that guy, he looks like important. Who is that guy? Who is that girl? Who is that? And go take them to dinner and pick their brain about the things they've done and pick their brain about their story. So I had a lot of relationships okay. with people who were in business. And I just started asking them questions about things they knew about me and what that translated into in the business world. Um, so that led me to you know, apply for Warden. My wife had been down there. She graduated uh, with a master's from the University of Pennsylvania in social policy in 2012. So I'd seen her process of, of, of going back to school with kids and, 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 and so on and so forth. I felt confident I could do the same thing. Uh, had 11 days to, to get a GMAT score that was uh, acceptable to, for a, you know, the number one business school in the, in the world. I uh, was able to do right. that. Um, and, you know, again, I was just off to the races at that point. Got down there, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 32, 33-year-old kid uh, that has no, no experience whatsoever in, you know, actually working in a business field. And I'm competing with these 24-year-olds who are on scholarship from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and, you know, Apple and whatever else it may be. So, again, it was another challenge. And uh, the reason why I did it, honestly, is because uh, I just saw a, a – a need for for players, athletes, and entertainment, 
and people in general to have more representation in the space. Someone who yeah. understood what it what it takes to, you know, work a twenty four seven job, which is being an athlete, and and still having to have an understanding around your finances because we've heard so many stories and saw many sto- many stories of of these people who have made tons of money and don't have anything to show for it once their careers are over or five years out. So that was my motivation, and that was the thing that 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 allowed me to wake up every morning was a level of gratitude of having the opportunity to be in the situation I am. Driving down there, you know, four days a week, you know, two hours down, two hours back, that gets old. So if you don't have a motivation around what you're doing and why you're doing it, you'll you'll you you'll most likely lax and and, and, and and not accomplish the goal that you set forth for yourself. So what's the next thing for Justin Tuck? Like have you thought about the next goal you want to achieve? You know what I I have um, I'm thinking about writing a book. I'm thinking about, um, I mean, honestly, just growing my team at Goldman Sachs. I'm making some hires around the people I want to work with. Uh, I'm, you know, trying to, you know, understand everything there is about the clients that I that I work for and and how to better service them. And you know, in the role that I'm in, it, I hate saying this, but honestly, I'm kind of forced to being a jack of all trades because. I have to understand enough about every sector, about everything in finance, because you never know what that call is going to be like. When that phone rings and it's yeah. a partner of Goldman Sachs or it's a big client, you don't know what they're going to ask you about, but they expect you to have the answer. Uh, right. So I'm just constantly diving into the education of, of, of what's going on in the markets and what's going on in this world and just being that much more prepared for you know the the unknown, I guess. So what's next for me? It's it's a day it's a day by day thing of just always trying to better yourself in the things that I work in. You know, me and my wife are very passionate about our philanthropy efforts. Figuring out what's what's the next board I want to be on, and 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 how I want to lend my expertise to that. Those those type of things really intrigue me, and, and I. I probably losing a lot of sleep on on, on that question, Trey. But uh, it's exciting, yeah. though. Well, listen, I, I feel pretty confident that uh, whatever you decide to do, you'll be pretty good at it. And I think it makes all the sense in the world now that I'm putting it together. But a guy who had four sacks and two Super Bowls, of course, he's going to work for Goldman Sachs. Exactly. <laughs> it just made all the sense in the world. Hey, listen, man. Uh, I appreciate your time. I know it's precious. Uh, appreciate you being with me. Uh, I've always enjoyed your friendship over the years. And I. Uh, look forward to whatever it is you're going to conquer next because uh, I'm sure that's the way it's going to turn out. Well, thank you, Trey. And stop dodging, dodging the golf game. It's been, I think, four <laughs> years now. Uh, so, yeah, whenever you want to get beat, let me know. Done. Done. <laughs> and that will happen. All right, thanks once again to Justin Tuck. Always love to see what people are doing post-career, and he is doing really, really well. And thanks to our friends at Starbucks Triple Shot Energy Drink. Uh, It's amazing. It's everything you need in a can to get you through whatever you need to get through, and it's delicious. Speaking of delicious, that's our next guest coming up uh, on the next episode of Half Forgotten History. It's about golf, the Ryder Cup, the Euros versus the Americans. And who better to break that all down with than a man who's been in that fire pit and has captained the U.S. team to victory in 2008. We'll sit down and talk Ryder Cup golf with Paul Azinger on next week's episode. We'll see you then.